That's a neat text. I never heard that before. I asked Aaron on Tuesday, what is that song? He said, it's great. What a beautiful song. God of our now, ever faithful and true covenant God and all of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you, Aaron, for that new text, familiar tune. I'm excited uh, today to, to kind of move into a new section of Isaiah. It's a new series for this month, Comfort for Exiles. Uh, so grateful for Michael Kelly uh, bringing the word last week. Uh, I've told Morgan, I got to quit finding these preachers who are so much better than me. It's going to really uh, put a damper when I preach. But uh, we are, are blessed to live in this city in Nashville where there are so many good preachers around. But Michael is a dear friend and I've known him for a long time and uh, just did a phenomenal job uh, leading us through Isaiah. Uh, and Aaron, as usual, uh, just keeping us steady. July 18, we're going to hear a word from young minister Evan Kuntz. Our student minister is going to bring the word. And then on August 15th, Dr. Bill Sherman is going to preach on our 80th anniversary celebration. Be sure and go online and reserve your spot for lunch. $5, $20 family max for lunch. But uh, it's going to be a wonderful dinner on the grounds to celebrate. Uh, I think our, our church is so ready for fellowship and we just want to be together around the tables, enjoying food together. Once again, fellowship is one reason why we meet for worship. Fellowship is one of our key purposes as a church. We're commanded in scripture to baptize others into fellowship uh, with the body of Christ. So I can't wait for that special day to celebrate all that God's done before. And then on August 22nd, Evan and the Youth Praise Band are going to lead the music on the 22nd as we get a look at our next generation as where we're going for the future. So don't miss uh, these special days of worship. Sometimes, uh, you know, I, I read books about leadership and I'm still learning how to be a leader. And, uh, you know, we read about leaders sometimes, as, as Gary Everton says, it's all about leadership. It's all about leadership. And sometimes we read about leaders who are just in over their heads. When the crises of leadership come, they prove to not be up to the task. They prove to, to just be uh, in over their heads. Maybe their character or their competency or both are found to be lacking. In this section of Isaiah, what we're going to see today is, is that Hezekiah, the king of God's people, the king of Judah, the descendant of King David, we're going to see that he just is completely overwhelmed by the task before him and he doesn't handle it well. Turns out he's not really cut out for the job of being the leader of God's people. He's in over his head. Generally, Hezekiah is a good guy. He's a good king. He wants to do the right thing. He, he generally is, is someone who knows God and, and wants to, to do what God wants. But when faced with the burden of spiritual leadership, he panics. And he starts acting like a functional atheist. We saw this back in chapter 33 and in chapter 36 when the mighty, brutal Assyrian army is gathered at Jerusalem's doorstep and King Hezekiah says, quick, let's raid all the holy treasury of the temple. Let's try to buy this guy off, strip the gold off the temple, see if we can give him that and see if, if that'll be enough for him. And he makes a deal 
with Sennacherib and with the, the people of Assyria, and they say, yeah, we'll take your gold. And then they, they say, thanks, we're still going to attack you. We didn't come all this way to leave you guys standing. And of course, they, they double-cross them. They plan to attack. And, and last week, we heard a good story about Hezekiah, where Michael Kelly, again, brought this word from uh, Isaiah chapter 38, where really it's Hezekiah's finest moment. Because he realizes that when the Lord is all he has, the Lord is all he needs. In that moment of desperation, he turns to the Lord. He goes into the temple and he prays this beautiful prayer. Michael said it was, it was surprising what he prayed. Remember that? He, he prayed, what I would have prayed is, Lord, save us. Lord, do something. Send fireballs to consume the Assyrian army. We need you. But what does Hezekiah pray? Remember, Michael Kelly said, God, these guys are mocking you. God, you are high and holy. You are exalted over all the earth. You're enthroned above all the angels. And now the Assyrians are making fun of you. They're decrying your name. So now save us, not so we can live comfortable lives for ourselves, a life of ease and prosperity, but so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Hezekiah's main concern in that moment wasn't his own comfort, wasn't his own safety, wasn't his own leisure. It was that God's glory would spread throughout all the world. And Michael was right. He said that the main thing for God's people is God's glory. And that may not sound very compelling to you. You may say, what does that even mean? Why should I be concerned about God's glory? It's because God is the most glorious being in all of creation. He's the most perfect, most beautiful, most exalted, most perfect, perfectly holy Thing in all of creation. Therefore, it is right and it is good for us to ascribe glory to his name. And it's also right and good for him to pursue his own glory because that fits with his integrity. It's right and good for all of us, including God, to, to bring glory to that which is ultimately glorious. Does that make sense? It's a little confusing, but it really, that clicked for me in college. The loving thing then for us to do is not to hoard the glory of God for ourselves, but to seek to spread it throughout the earth. And Hezekiah's prayer that God would defend his own name was answered. The Lord struck down almost 200,000 Assyrians and they packed up and they headed home. The national crisis was averted. But here in chapter 38 and 39, we're going to see how Hezekiah handles a personal crisis. Chapters 36 and 37 really validated what the chapter 28 through 35 had been saying, that God is a faithful ally. If we put our trust in him, things will go well for us. If we put our trust in things of the world, we'll ultimately be let down. And, and chapters 36 and 37 prove that. That's great, and that shows us where we've been. But now these next two chapters are gonna show us where we're going, and it's not pretty. We're gonna see how quickly we can make a mess of things, but we're also gonna see how the Lord can bring beauty out of the wreckage that we make. 
We're going to see how the Lord redeems and how he shows grace and how he sends comfort to those in exile. Let's pick it up in chapter 38, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 38, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. It's an amazing thing to watch a believer walk through the journey of, of having received a terminal diagnosis. You know, I've had the, the privilege as a pastor to witness a few saints over my time here at Woodmont who've received that diagnosis and faced that journey with an appropriate sense of grief, right? A sadness about being uh, removed from their loved ones for a time on this earth. But I've also seen a peace that passes understanding. I've seen supernatural peace. Someone came to my office recently after such a diagnosis and told me with such calmness, I'm sad, but I'm not scared. You know, how we live matters, yes, and how we die matters too. What happens at the end of our earthly story really sheds light on what happened earlier in our story. You know, what we see here with Hezekiah, he prays that God would save him, but something's off. Really two things that I want to point out here. First, apparently he doesn't understand how God works. He seems think that the good things he's done will somehow cause God to heal him. But we know that God will not be manipulated by anyone. God's not coerced into healing, of course. God shows grace to whomever he chooses to show grace to, and all of our good works are as what? Filthy rags before the glorious riches of God's grace and power. Second, it seems like Hezekiah's uh, logic is not only unconvincing to God, but it's unconvincing to himself as well. Because instead of praying, you know, God save me, oh, thank God for his healing. Instead, he prays, God heal me. And then he says, he, he weeps bitterly. It's like, oh no. <laughs> I know that I haven't done enough good to make God heal me. I know that. So he weeps. It's not a bold prayer of confident faith in the Lord. It's like a, like a Hail Mary, like a desperate shot in the dark when all other options have been exhausted. But the Lord is so unbelievably generous with second chances. Amen? Thank God for second chances. Look at verses 4 through 6. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Isn't it good to know that God sees our tears? Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and the city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. Wow, God's grace is so abundant. Isn't it a wonderful thing that instead of rebuking Hezekiah's weak, kind of selfish 
lackluster prayer, the Lord extends his life. And not only that, he promises to deliver Jerusalem from the Assyrians and to defend Jerusalem. What a God we serve. Even our, our half-hearted prayers that we don't really even believe ourselves, even our selfish prayers are met with amazing grace. God's answer to Hezekiah's request was so much greater than the request itself. Isn't that just like God? And it wasn't because Hezekiah was a good person. That's not it at all. It was because God is faithful. Because God keeps his promises, his covenants, promises that he'd made to David and to the lineage of kings from which the ultimate king would eventually come. And just to prove his point, God confirms his dual promises of healing and deliverance with a miraculous sign. Look at verses seven and eight. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I'll make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz, that's Hezekiah's daddy, turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the 10 steps by which it had declined. God is turning back the clock on Hezekiah's life. And so to prove that, he turns back the clock on that very day. It's a gracious sign to prove his point. Next, Hezekiah sings a psalm to the Lord. Look at verse 9. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he'd been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. This is Isaiah praying this desperate prayer. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. He's lamenting how horrible death is, the possibility of being cut off from fellowship with God and with each other. Those are the two sweetest things in life, aren't they? Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. He's, he's lamenting the possibility of death. And, and he says, this, this, this poem is literally called After I Was Sick and Then Was Returned to Life. It's a beautiful thing. Death is the worst thing in this life. In the next few verses, he talks about how awful death is, but he's got this new lease on life, right? He's got a second chance. Look at verses 15 to 17. Go back one, Miles. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me, and he himself has done it. He's brought me to life. I walk slowly all my years. I'm going to savor every moment I have left because of the bitterness of my soul. O oh Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O oh, restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare, that word is shalom in Hebrew, that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. Not only has he restored him to life physically, but he's removed his sin as well. You know, when we allow our kids to stay up late and, you know, watch a movie or uh, we took them, you know, to a, a safari park on Friday and, and they will be really thankful. Every parent wants their kid to be grateful, right? And they'll say, thank you. Usually they'll say, thank you so much, mom and dad, for letting us have that extra dessert or for letting us stay up late and watch this movie or for taking us to this cool place. And, 
it, it does a, a parent's you know, heart good to hear their kids say thank you, but then inevitably, a few hours later, will pass and then it turns into, well, he touched me and he, he took my toy and he, you know, it's like inevitable selfishness kind of creeps back up. Sorry, kids, to throw you under the bus like that, but uh, it happens. They start out so grateful. And then over time, we see that they just creep back into their old ways. That's apparently what happened with Hezekiah. After the psalm, Isaiah gives Hezekiah another sign of God's healing, a, a physical token to enact the supernatural healing of the Lord. Look at verse 21. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. That's a, a, a nice sign of God's grace to give him a physical sign of what he's doing. But then here's the red flag. Here's the big red flag. Verse 22. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Are you kidding me? God had just turned the clock back literally on that day. He had removed Isaiah's sickness. He had sent the Assyrians, the mighty Assyrians who nobody could beat. He sent them running back to Assyria with their tail tucked between their legs. And Hezekiah doesn't get it. He says, now, now what's the sign that I should worship the Lord? <laughs> it, it's clear that he should be worshiping the Lord throughout all of this. All of these good things that God is doing should result in praise and in glory back for the Lord, but he doesn't get it. It's always appropriate, whether you see God working or not, to give him praise and honor because he is worthy to receive it. Hezekiah knows that, right? He's a believer, right? He trusts God, right? Sort of. He knows the right words to say. He's been in the temple a million times. He went to Hebrew school. But his heart is not poised for worship. The soil of his heart is not fertile ground for the spirit to take root and to return praise to the living God. Deep down, Hezekiah is not really a spiritual person at this point. He's living in a worldly way, not by faith. You know, that ominous question in verse 22 goes unanswered. The, the Bible doesn't even deal with it. What's the sign that I should go worship the Lord? And it sets the stage for what happens next. Okay, the Assyrians, I know you're all sick of hearing of them. They're finished, okay? At this point, they're, they're gone. No more uh, talk about Assyria. Now enters the new bad guys onto the scene, the Babylonians. Look at verses 39, uh, 1 and 2, chapter 39, 1 and 2. At that time, Merodach Baladon, that's a fun word to say, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he'd heard that he'd been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. What's, what's going on here? Babylon is a totally different animal from Assyria, okay? Ray Ortland, in his commentary, he points out how in the book of Revelation, evil comes to us in two really distinct forms. First, 
evil comes in the form of a great beast. And the, the beast is this dominant power that cannot be defeated. The great beast that just dominates through violence and through power, right? But then evil also comes in the form of a great prostitute. And the prostitute doesn't come with great overwhelming power. The prostitute comes subtly and subversively and seductively. That's what Babylon is doing here. I think probably in our culture in America, that's more often how evil comes to us, is in that subtle and subversive kind of way. Hezekiah had just watched the Assyrians leave, stunned by their sudden loss of 185,000 soldiers, and now he'd recovered from a terminal illness, and he's feeling pretty good about himself. He's feeling pretty good about Judah. He's like, look, we're still standing. Nobody else could defeat the Assyrians, but we did it. And he, he comes, here comes these guys sent by the king of Babylon to congratulate him, and he's proud to show them how well things are going. He's feeling very self-important. At the SBC convention here in uh, the Music City Center a few weeks ago, um, it, it's shocking to me. Aaron Duncan has been to a few of these. I'd never been to one before. And there's a lot of guys in like suits and like, you know, we were dressed pretty casually because we weren't, you know, speaking or anything. And Aaron said, yes, yeah, the guys in the suits that are usually the ones that want to be, you know, on the platform. And I didn't even know that's like a thing that like a lot of pastors, it's their goal to be on the platform at the SBC. It's like this, this high moment of importance and, and worth and value. You know, the, there was a lot of talk about the world is watching what we're doing here. It's, it's very important who Southern Baptists are. And I was, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But a, a friend who went to the convention with us sent me this article uh, that said more people watch an episode of Law and Order Organized Crime each week than attend a Southern Baptist church. It also mentioned there's more Catholics in the state of California than there are Southern Baptists in the world. So all of this kind of self-importance, all of this we're such a big deal kind of talk is not helpful or healthy to the kingdom. There's so many pastors that that want to gain a following on, on Twitter and, and on social media. They want to be on these committees and these boards so they can, you know, throw their weight around and make policies. Let's not get too puffed up. I'm preaching to myself here maybe more than you. When we start to feel our own self-importance, we inevitably lose sight of God-importance. You can't do both. If you're self-important, then God is not important. That's what happens to Hezekiah. Look at verse 3, keep going. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, they've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. Ooh, that sounds mysterious, right? You know, Hezekiah doesn't see through what's happening, but Isaiah knows better. All throughout the Bible, Babylon represents everything that is impressive to humanity and to our culture, but everything that is opposed to God and to the ways of God. Babylon is not good people for the kingdom of God. And, and Hezekiah doesn't see that. But the prophet Isaiah, of course, does. Hezekiah is seduced. He has a chance to make an alliance with the new cool kid in town, with the new bully in town, with the, the new guy on the scene. 
this up and coming country. He doesn't answer the first question that Isaiah asked. What did these men say to you and where they've come from? He just says, look, prophet, these guys are from this really cool up and coming country. And they came all this way to meet with me because I'm the man who turned Assyria away. Isaiah knows better. Again, he's like, you're not the man. God's the man. The Babylonians don't really want to be your friend, Hezekiah. They're using you. And as soon as they get the chance, they're going to invade you and destroy your entire city and carry off God's people as property. You know, Babylonians are walking around the palace and the treasury and they're saying, ooh, ah, wow, that's so nice. They're not really complimenting uh, Hezekiah. They're thinking, that's going to look great in my living room back in Babylon. <laughs> I can't wait to carry that off. They're look, making an inventory of what all they're going to steal as soon as they invade. Our enemy is clear, John 10, 10. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. There is no making a deal with him. But Jesus has come that we may have life and life to the fullest. That's what's happening. Again, Hezekiah doesn't want to hear these things. He's already seduced by the power of the Babylonians. Let's be content, though, to, to not be power grubbing, you know, to not want the influence of the cool friends around us. They're trying to decide, again, what to save and what to steal when they destroy Jerusalem. But for Christians, let's just be content with, with being God's child. Let's be content that it's important, that we are important enough to God that he would send his only son, that whoever believes in him would be saved. It doesn't end up well for old Hezekiah, okay? This is how we end our journey. Hezekiah, you know, really didn't end well. Look at verses five through eight. Then Hezekiah, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day, everything you just showed to the Babylonians will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord you've spoken is good. What? For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. What a terrible, terrible, selfish thing to say, oh, my sons are going to be cut off from the living God. Judah's going to be destroyed. That's okay. Peace and security in my days. Wow, how selfish is that guy? He, all he cares about is his days. Not my problem is basically how he leaves it. I'm going to die peacefully in my bed. Not my problem. What does all this mean for us today? Let me just briefly show you four key takeaways, okay? This text shows the clear dichotomies, the stark contrast between God's ways and the world's ways. First, let's look at how, we're going to talk about four ways of how we receive things. First, how do we receive the word of the Lord? In, in, in chapter 38, verse 1, God's mouthpiece, Isaiah, comes with a word from the Lord to speak over Hezekiah. He's going to die apart from the Lord's intervention. In chapter 39, verse 1, envoys from Babylon come with a different word. Ooh, your stuff is pretty and shiny. 
They come with a word of flattery. How do we receive God's word? Which one does Hezekiah listen to? Which one does he delight in? Which one brings life and flourishing? Second, how do we receive the promises of God? Are we betting our lives on them? Do we really believe them? Do we really believe deep down that God is faithful, that he's both all-powerful and all-good? In chapter 38, verses 4 to 8, God promises to both heal Hezekiah and deliver Jerusalem, not because Hezekiah had earned some kind of moral favor, but because God made promises generations ago to King David and before that to his ancestor Abraham to, to protect God's covenant people and to have them flourish for the sake of the world. Compare God's rock-solid covenants that are proved over and over with the promise of Babylon. Babylon who said, yeah, we're going to be good friends who would soon destroy Judah once and for all. Gaining prestige as the little brother of the new bully in town who promises to watch your back and, and form an alliance with you against Assyria and whoever else, it's not worth it. Hezekiah made a choice in chapter 39, verse 2, when he embraced the envoys from Babylon and showed them everything. Third, how do we receive the salvation that God offers us? The Lord brings us, like Hezekiah, from death to life. It's a miracle. Miracle. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, he literally makes us new from the inside out as we are born again into a living hope, resurrection hope that changes everything. Hezekiah recounted all the amazing ways that the Lord had saved him in verses 9 to 20 in his psalm, all the amazing things that God had done for him, but it doesn't amount to a hill of beans in the end. All of that paled in his view when being offered a chance to be on the platform, to be important. In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 39, Hezekiah tries to explain to Isaiah how important and just how cool these guys from Babylon really are. These guys are a big deal. They came a long way to see me. He'd rather take what they can give him than what the Almighty God can give him. Fourth and finally, how do we receive the heritage that the Lord offers us? Here's the thing. It's really important to understand the difference between a heritage and a legacy. Every one of us receives a heritage from those who have come before us. Sitting in this sanctuary right now is the result of those saints who in the early 1950s decided to build this beautiful cathedral to the Lord here. And, and now we get to benefit from that. That's our heritage. We also all leave a legacy. That is what we leave for those who come after us. It's really important to think about those. What have we received from those who've come before us and what will we leave behind for those who come after us? Each of us inherits you know, our lot in life. We don't get to pick the cards that are dealt to us. It's up to us though how to steward that heritage. It's up to us to think about what kind of legacy we're gonna leave. In chapter 38, verse 21, Isaiah receives these, these tokens of grace and healing, but when it's revealed 
that he's going to be the architect of national ruin. All he cares about is his own immunity. Our legacy matters. It's not about us. We must think of those who will come after us. If you haven't walked through our heritage room, I encourage you to do it. To see, you know, 20 saints gathered in the cafeteria at Hillsborough High School because they wanted to form a Baptist church here on this corner out in the country where this used to be in the 40s. It's important to see that. That's our heritage. It matters. That means that caring for Woodmont's spiritual and physical heritage is our job now. It's not about us. We're all just interim. I'm just the interim pastor getting it ready for the next person who comes after me. That means helping to enact policies both nationally and locally and globally that will bless our children and their children and those who come behind us. That's how love dictates that we live our lives for others and not for ourselves. Isaiah's made this, this contrast clear how we receive the word of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord, the heritage of the Lord, all these things from the Lord. Do we despise them or do we treasure them as life-giving and good? We're going to see that theme unfold in, in myriad ways over the next 26 chapters. God's ways are best. They alone lead to flourishing. Even when we mess up, even in our weak and selfish prayers, even in our generational failures, God is longing to show us comfort and grace and healing. The gospel is that in our weakness, he is strong. Let's trust in him more deeply today and let the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that even in our half-hearted attempts at spirituality, that you don't despise us. You don't roll your eyes at us. You don't get frustrated even. But you come to us with abundant grace. It's not a cheap grace, God. We know that grace costs you so much more than we could ever fathom. And we can never repay you for that grace, but I pray that you would help us to live into the gospel more fully. May we bring ourselves closer to you through communion today so that we can have an encounter with the living God just like Isaiah did in chapter 6 and that you would then send us, we would raise our hand and say, here am I, send me as we go out into the world to leave a legacy of goodness and grace behind us. We know that life is short. We know that some may have 80 years, 90 years, even 100 years. But we know that that's just a, a, a candle in the wind. It's just a, a mist that's here today and gone tomorrow. We know it's just a quick introduction to the major story that is yet to be written. So I pray that you would help us all to steward our heritage with wisdom and with love. May we leave behind a better church, a better city, a better country, for those that come after us, not so they can be prosperous and, and, and leisurely lives, but so that they can more fully experience your goodness and your grace and your salvation. Lord, forgive us when we receive the things of this world with more delight and more trust than we receive 
the things of you. May we learn that what you give is infinitely better than anything this world can give. We know that in our heads, help our hearts to believe it today. We pray this in the high and holy, powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.